Uh, if you've got a Bible, would you turn with me to John chapter 1? We're beginning our, uh, our weeks together, our mornings together, by reading from God's Word. We want to make sure it's front and center. And so John chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 19 through 34 this morning together. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the, one, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for his purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Top of the morning to you. There really is nothing like Pastor Dave saying that, uh, by the way. I don't know if he used an Irish accent, did he? I don't think he did. Anyway, that's pretty much like, I literally want to say that more than anything else in the world. Um, This morning as we get into John chapter 1, the the second half of it, um, I want to start off by talking a little bit about the church today. And by the church, I mean the church in in America and our whole country. Um, If you know anything about church and church attendance in modern times, you know that church attendance has been declined slowly in America over the last several years, over many years. And um, partly this is due to population growth and church is just simply not keeping up with that in terms of the people that attend churches. In uh, in the most recent poll or any recent poll that was given to people um, in asking about those who participate in church, attend a church, attend a church um, in any way, um, currently here, I I have it up here, Uh, in in 1990, 20.4% of people said they attended church. Uh, 2018.7% said they attended church, and in 2004, 17.7% said they attended church. And in 2002, only 6% out of 1,159 U.S. churches were growing. Now, this was um, like, you know, 16 years ago, 17 years ago, that that, that number was given, and uh, the decline has only continued. It hasn't gone up. Um, now, uh, what, uh, what this tells us is a couple of things. Um, now, first of all, as a pastor, I also know that most, that, that for all of the people who say they attend a church, 
that that doesn't always mean that they attend a church. I'm just going to say it. Uh, and so these numbers are likely even lower than what, you, than what you hear about in these types of surveys. But what we, what we, what we see in these numbers is the fact that um, even if it doesn't feel to those in the church, like the church is in decline, that it is numerically in America. Um, oftentimes it doesn't feel like it because like I said, uh, the population outside the church might be growing, but the church might feel like it's sort of the same that it was before. We're not aware of the fact that the world is literally getting bigger. There are more people in it, but the Christian world really doesn't seem to be getting bigger at the same rate. We are shrinking actually. We're getting smaller and smaller. Uh, a recent survey has said that um, that in 2020, that 15% of people will say they identify with attending a church, and that in 2050, it will probably be down to somewhere near 11% of people saying, I attend a church as a religious person. And it may not feel that bad to us yet, but it is. Now, uh, what we also know today through some surveys and studies is that people are increasingly feeling disconnected from the idea of community. People feel isolated, people feel disconnected, and community, uh, and, and they feel this kind of by choice in the sense that people don't really feel drawn to the idea of community and being around groups of people like they used to. People prefer to be individuals in much of what they do. And this is no different in the world of uh, what we see in church reflected here. What we also see in the world around us is that things aren't all that great. We, we know that depression and anxiety rates are going up through the roof. And that's not just people that, that sort of chemically or genetically have propensities toward depression and anxiety, but people who, uh, due to environmental reasons, um, have developed um, a, a struggle with anxiety or with depression. That those numbers are skyrocketing. That, that in teens, that suicide side is at all-time highs. And I was recently talking to a friend who had gone to a psychiatric facility to see his niece. She was 16 and she was suicidal. And he was there talking to the doctor who said, we literally cannot keep up with demand. We don't have space for all of the suicidal teens right now. And he said that upwards of 70% of the teens that were there under the age of 18 that were having thoughts of suicide or wanting to harm themselves upwards of 70% of them, the reason for these feelings was linked back to the internet or social media in some way or another. Meaning the very technology that we have that is connecting our world and seems to be making it in many ways a better place is killing us, it seems, and separating us and isolating us and making us depressed and making us anxious. People are even living longer now and yet feeling as they get older less and less connected from others, like they're more isolated, they're more alone. What we see in this is the fact that the world uh, feels darker than it maybe did even before. Um, and, and a lot of us would look at that and we would say, well, maybe that's why people aren't in church. I don't know. Maybe you would think that if the world gets worse, that people are more drawn and attracted to church. But you could also say that maybe they simply don't see a need for it because of the world they live in is so far away from the idea of God being real. Some would look at these numbers and they would say, well, that doesn't mean that people don't want Jesus, right? I mean, people maybe want Jesus. They just don't want the church. They don't want religion that they identify with and resonate with the message of Jesus, but just not with this organized thing that we call religion. I mean, if I wanted to really experience whatever was going to be best for me spiritually, why in the world would I think that that would be the same for another group of people? 
wouldn't my most spiritual growth come from my own personal experience alone? Not assuming that what works for all of you is somehow going to end up working for me, right? Or that the idea that the church is something that people need, you know, but for whatever reason, we just don't know how to reach people in this world in which we live. We don't know how to make the gospel relevant to people. We don't know how to interact with this culture that we live in. What we saw in the early church was tremendous growth, and we saw growth that we wish we could see today. And we look at that and we think the circumstances must have been better, things must have been different than they are today. The reason the church is in decline today is because of the world that the church in America especially has to live in, that of course we're in decline. And yet when we look at the early church, one of the things that we see that is shocking is that the early church grew and really exploded in a more secular and a more progressive society than the one in which we live today that people became Christians of all socioeconomic backgrounds. The poorest slaves and the richest household uh, heads and homeowners and people in society, people of the Roman Empire and people uh, of more the Jewish faith. In fact, we saw growth happen in the church from what they call Gentiles, which is non-Jewish people that were not really religious-minded. And then we saw a ton of growth coming from people who were Jewish, coming out of organized religion. We saw incredible explosive growth happen even in the most secular and progressive areas. And yet we look at our areas and we go, no, 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 that kind of growth wouldn't happen today here, right? It can't happen because of the state of the world, because of things that are happening. And so why did it happen then and it doesn't happen now? And the reason that we saw the growth that we did in the church way back when, and the reason that we're experiencing decline in the church now, there is one simple reason. And I say it's simple, and you're like, well, Ed, if it's so simple, then why doesn't everyone talk about it or know it or whatever? Well, because it's simple in that it's obvious, and yet it's very difficult when you start talking about what it means for all of us. The simple truth is the reason that we don't see the kind of growth that we do today, that we did in the early church, is because... People at that time won people over for Jesus by the way that they lived. It wasn't the sermons, because you didn't usually hear the teaching of the word until you came to the household church and heard it presented. There were often public defenses of the gospel, but those weren't primarily the ways that the church would grow. It was by seeing the way that Christians lived. That there was something about that that attracted people of all strata of society to this message of this Jesus. It was seeing what it meant for their lives. And when we look at the lives of early Christians, we know that they weren't very ideal and there was a lot of persecution. So it wasn't seeing how wonderful and happy and easy their lives were. And yet there was something about the way that Christians lived in the early church that drew people to their faith in a way that we do not experience today. And it was simple. They actually did the things that Jesus talked about. And we really struggle with that. When we're honest, we live at a time in which if we were to actually do many of the things Jesus talked about, we would consider that behavior radical. We wouldn't consider it normal in the church. My friend Justin, who years ago sold his home, he lived with his wife and two kids, sold his home, his very large home that he uh, lived in for many years, um, and downsized, moved a couple blocks away to a smaller house that was big enough for him and his two kids, 
That, that when Justin did that, simply because he felt that the call of Jesus was that he lived below the standard of living he had been living before, that, that there was no way that he could be as generous with his money, with his time uh, as a business owner um, who was trying to grow a business or maintain one, that there was no way he could, be, he could live the way that Jesus called him to live without living below the standard that he had developed. When my friend Justin did that, he became radical. He didn't do something that was normal. And we love him and we admire him. You know, I like being friends with him because I can be like, oh, I have friends that are radical, you know. My friend Sarah, who meets with women in virtually all of her free time, not because she enjoys meeting with women, but because they need Jesus and because they're all over the place in terms of how much they would even consider approaching God. And that somebody who gives that much of their time to sitting down with the Bible, with person after person after person, from exotic dancers to women who have lived in the church their whole lives. That is considered radical. That's not considered normal and typical in the church today. And when we're honest, much of what we read about in Scripture, were we to do it, it would be radical. It wouldn't be normal. Justin told me, Pastor Justin told me yesterday that somebody broke, uh, broke the driver's side window of the church van when they were in San Francisco and stole his and Megan's backpacks out of it, and their jackets were in their backpacks, smash and grab. And uh, I just saw a picture of, they're, they're headed back right now, and they've got like plastic up on the window. So he gets to drive back from San Francisco with a plastic window. That'll be fun. Um, and Justin and I were talking on, uh, on the phone about it, and you know, he was, he was unhappy that someone had broken the window and stolen their jackets and their backpacks. And I will tell you that he really, really wanted to find who did it. And, but what I didn't get the sense of was that he wanted to find who did it so that he could go, hey, kids, let's give them your jackets too. Because remember what Jesus says. That'd be a pretty cool illustration, you know. <laughs> Parents wouldn't be happy, right? <laughs> right? You know, that's, uh, that's why you always give someone a jacket. I don't know. We consider doing many of the things that Jesus talks about to be radical. And we wonder why the church is not growing. We wonder why people are not attracted to the faith. And it's much of the time because people look within the walls of the church and recognize that the behavior isn't that radically different from outside the church, even though we believe and profess things that are radically different from the thing that anyone outside the church would believe or profess. The testimony that we give is not that different, it turns out from those outside the walls of the church. And you would think, well, isn't the testimony us talking about Jesus? No, the testimony is us talking about ourselves. That the way in which we go about living our lives happens in such a way that people seem to see us, but they don't seem to see Jesus. This morning's account is the account of John the Baptist, who has been making waves in the area that he's been in because he's been <laughs> making waves. He's been baptizing people, Jewish people. And some Pharisees have come to seek him out because they want to know what's going on. Who is this person they're hearing about? This person's talking about some things that seem to indicate maybe the Messiah is coming. And there was great anticipation at the time for the Messiah to come. These guys have come looking 
And uh, they are living under, uh, they are living in an area, in a society in which uh, Jewish people are forced to live under Roman occupation, which means they kind of have to go by someone else's laws, someone else's rules, and they have to do what someone else says. And they don't really like it that way. It's not ideal for them. And so they are looking forward to the day when God will save them like he saved their ancestors, the Israelites. You see, the Jewish people have been anticipating a Messiah, especially over the last 400 years, which we call the intertestamental period, the period in between the Old and the New Testaments. They've been waiting for someone to come because God has been silent. There have been no prophets. There has been nothing from him in 400 years. And before that, there was a lot of talk about somebody coming and God rescuing his people or redeeming his people yet again because they know that their God is a God who says and has shown them that he will always, always rescue them, that he will pursue them and he will rescue his people because that is who he is as a God. And so as he does that, and as they wait for him to do that, they think about this Messiah that's gonna come, who's been foretold. And it says that a prophet will come, that one like Elijah will come. And they expect that it might actually be Elijah because Elijah didn't really die. Nobody saw him die. He just kind of went away and disappeared. And they didn't really have pictures of people back then. And so they couldn't be like, you know, no, you're not him, right? And they're like, well, you have a beard, he had a beard, you know, and nobody wears pants yet, so it kind of all goes together, but we're all wearing Bible costumes, so that makes it confusing. And so they show up and they want to know, are you this Messiah? Are you this guy, Elijah? Are you a prophet? What's going on and why in the world are you baptizing Jewish people in the river? They have been, it would be an understatement to say that the Jewish people and the leaders have been longing for a Messiah to come and to save them and to rescue them. Because the world in which they live is one that they want freedom from. When they talk about the Messiah, they often think about Moses. They like to think about Moses, the great liberator who came to them when they were in slavery because living in slavery is just about the worst, and came to them and said, God has anointed me to lead you into freedom. Not just to be free from slavery, but to get to worship him and to be with him. But, you know, that's not the important part, right? The important part is he's going to free them from bondage in Egypt and do it in a really dramatic and epic way, and he's going to use Moses to do it. And so when they think about a Messiah, they think another Moses is going to come. He's going to come and he's going to save us from this world that we're living in. This world that is evil, this world that is corrupt, because we need someone to come. There is no doubt in our mind that the world in which we live in is corrupt, that there is something wrong with it, that there's something broken about it. Before Jesus was ever born, it turns out, these people knew that they needed a savior. And before most people ever even hear the name of Jesus in this world, in this life, we know that there's something wrong with this world and that there's something wrong with us. Why do politicians and leaders like them exist? It is not just to run the mechanics of government. It is because we want people to look to that we think can actually fix things. In fact, we want people who will save us. And so we like people with the personality and the charisma and the language and the ideas that say to us, this person might be able to figure it out and help us. They might be able to lead us to a better place, a better way. 
That we actually look to them for things that are that significant because we know the world is messed up. I, I can't even watch documentaries anymore because they're all really just depressing, right? Like documentaries are just depressing. The more you learn about any issue, any subject, anything, you're just gonna be sad, right? If Ellie and I wanna watch a documentary on Netflix, I'm like, hey Ellie, what do you wanna be sad about tonight? That's pretty much it, right? Should we be sad about food? Let's watch this documentary on food because even though it looks happy, I'm sure in the end, we'll feel sad about food. Should we be sad? about school. Let's watch a documentary on the education system. How about we be sad about America because this one's about America or we be sad about, I don't know, like having kids or something because this one's about how having kids is terrible. I don't know. Uh, anything that we watch a documentary on is just going to make us feel bad about that thing and then we'll go to bed because it's always at night and then we'll just feel sad about something else. That's the world that we live in, right? If I'm going to learn about it, it's going to make me sad. There is no doubt in our mind that there is something wrong with this world. But there's something, there's no doubt in mind that we need help fixing it. And, and the Jews know this and they want somebody to come and just get them the heck out of there. But what John the Baptist is doing that is so strange, and it's why they come to ask him what's going on, is that he's baptizing Jewish people. Baptism was something that existed in the, in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish culture for, for many, many years. But the reason that they would baptize people was because they weren't Jewish. If you were converted to the Jewish faith, then you and maybe your entire family were baptized. It, it signified washing you clean of all your impurities so that you can now be a clean and, and upright Jewish person as you come into the faith. Jewish people were not baptized. Gentiles were baptized. And so this man, John, is baptizing Jewish people implying that they are in some way unclean, that they in some way have to be born again or be cleansed. You see, what John is showing already in the very first steps of his ministry is he is showing that when this Messiah comes, everyone is going to need to get saved. Everyone is going to need to get fixed. Everybody's going to be addressed. If we actually wanted to have, let's start easy. Let's start not from the actions and the way that we live and the things we do, because that's the stressful stuff maybe. Let's just start with the way that we look at things, okay? If we actually wanted to see things the way that someone like John sees things, in a radical way, because it's not normal and it's not typical, then the first thing that we would have to have is we would have to have a radical view of the world, we would have to look at the world and we would have to see it differently than most see it. When Jesus came and he began preaching, he made it very clear to people that when you are upset or frustrated or you look at the world and you see the brokenness in it, what you are to do is to look here and say, the problem with the world, the problem with what's going on, the problem with everything is right here. Now that frustrates a lot of us because we're like, no, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people doing a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, but that bad stuff comes from the same place as what you're dealing with and what you're doing. Because ever since the fall of man, we have been trying as hard as we can to live independently from God, trying to uh, be completely self-reliant and self-sufficient, trying to find complete fulfillment and complete joy in anything other than God himself, which is how he created us. And so because of that, 
we know that all of these things that we are experiencing in the world around us, the reason that we need somebody to come and fix all of this stuff is because of the fact that I'm messed up and you are messed up. And what it is, is in my heart. And it means looking within my own heart and saying, like, what is going on here? And the only way that the world would ever actually get any better in any kind of a real lasting way is if we started looking within ourselves and saying, God, what is going on in here? And how can you be a savior to me? Not just all those people out there. Is it possible that what's wrong with the world is in us? Is it possible that even if we got everything we wanted in life, that we would still not be happy and satisfied? I'm not even talking about the bad things we do that we wish we could stop. I'm talking about the good things that we want. Is it possible that if really allowed to pursue our heart's desire, that it would lead us to God? Or is it possible that it would lead us away from him every time? That the things that we want, that if we could actually achieve them, that we think would make us happy and would make us feel good, that in the end, even achieving those things would leave us feeling empty. We see it again and again in people as they live their lives. As people pursue something and get that thing, and it doesn't bring them the kind of fulfillment that they think. It doesn't make things better. And we spend much of our lives pursuing things, trying to get things, trying to be things, trying to do things. And the truth of the matter is that the conflict and the pain and all the things that we experience in this world is because everyone's trying to do that very thing. These people wanted a liberator. They wanted somebody to come and they wanted them to save. But the only way that that could really work is if we first recognize what's really going on. And it's completely radical. When we get angry, when we get upset, how much of the effort and the energy that we expend being frustrated with the world, with other people, how much of all of that is us simply not looking at things the way they really are? And if we actually looked at things the way that Jesus says they are, that would be completely radical. That would be totally different than the way that most people view things. These guys come and they ask John what he's doing and who he is. And when they ask him, he immediately, uh, he immediately denies being a prophet, being the Messiah, being Elijah. And what he ends up saying to them is he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. What John is doing is he is being asked by these men, these religious leaders, tell us who you are because obviously you're significant in some way. He probably is speaking with quite a bit of authority. He's baptizing people and people are believing what he's saying and they are wanting to be baptized and be given new life in the spirit that he talks about. And yet what he says to them is he says, I am not any of these things, and he immediately starts denying himself. Now, this is not something that, if you know anything about John's origins, makes a lot of sense to us. 
John's uh, parents were of the Levi tribe. His father was a priest, which is a very big deal. And as he went in one time to offer, to light incense and be a part of the worship ceremony, God spoke to him through an angel and said to him, you're going to have a child, even though you're old and you can't have children. And, uh, and, he, and, he, and he's going to be named John and he's going to be used by me. And he's going to have the Holy Spirit from birth in him. And unfortunately, I know we would all like to think that that would be something that would, that would work that way for us, but it doesn't. Even if your baby seems perfect and looks perfect and beautiful and wonderful, not going to get what John got. Is there a baby in here right now? There is, huh? Oh, gosh. Please. I'm, glad she's co- I'm glad she's covered up. The baby, not the mom. Um, keep going, keep going. And he doesn't believe God, he doubts him, and so he doesn't get to speak for nine months, which you could do an entire sermon on the wisdom of God right there, right? Like, guy's wife gets pregnant, takes away the ability for the husband to speak for nine months. Baby, uh, baby is born, he immediately begins to speak again once he, once he confesses and professes what God has done and truly believes, and then they give thanks and they give songs. Now, she knows Mary, Jesus' mom, They're, they like, there's so many things about John's life and the very origin of his life that would make him someone who today would be like repelled to the tops of all Christian stages that we would want to hear from this guy. His testimony is epic and it is amazing, okay? I, I said last week, there would definitely be a johnthebaptist.com website. And if he didn't start it, it'd be somebody else who started it and just talks about him and gets all the credit or something. He, he has every reason to say to these priests, let me take a second and tell you exactly who I am so that you can know exactly how I can have the confidence to say the things I do and that these people can believe what I'm saying and they can be baptized by me. This is like the scene in the movie where the person is unassuming and they don't think that they are somebody who's a big deal. And then it's like the big reveal. This person's a huge deal and you get to watch everyone be shocked and the person gets to be satisfied and then it's all really, really great and satisfying to watch. This opportunity is being handed to John on a silver platter as these Levite Pharisees come to him and they say, who are you? And instead of telling them who he is, he completely denies everything and starts talking about Jesus. He says, it is about this guy, Jesus, about the Christ who will come and here's what he will do. He denies things so much that he actually gets one of them wrong. He says, I'm not Elijah who would come. And Jesus later says, he was Elijah who would come. And the reason that that happens is because he, even in talking about himself, does not presume that he's the only one that is spoken of that is going to like usher in the way of Jesus. He's like, I can't even really associate myself with Elijah because he's a big deal and I'm not. What is amazing about John is that he has this absolutely amazing life and testimony, and yet he doesn't care at all about how any of these people see him, or even about how he sees himself. All he cares about is what his place is in the kingdom of God. I mean, if you were to try to find the equivalent of this right now, it would be you sitting here saying, it has not, I, I don't care at all that, uh, about my job or about how people see me or about the fact that I'm a parent or the fact that I'm a part of this family or the fact that I'm married to this person. My identity is literally in, first and foremost, above all else, the fact that God has called me to be X, Y, and Z. That I am saved in him and I'm called to be a part of his mission and that is everything about the life that I live. 
His identity is in the kingdom of God first, before it's in anything else. And it eclipses all the other aspects about who he is. What you see in John that is so incredible in the testimony that he gives, he is being given an opportunity to do something that we do often in the church, to give a testimony. And what he does instead is take all of the focus and he puts it on Jesus and takes it off of himself. What he has is he has a radical view, not just of the world, but of himself. And if we actually want to even begin by seeing the world the way that Jesus tells us it really is, that we must have a view of ourselves that is so different from every other view that it is radical. It is absolutely radical. And why is it radical? Because it's simple. We live our lives caring about two perspectives, either the, the perspective of other people, the opinions of other people, or our own opinion of ourselves. We will live our lives chasing after other people, approving of us, seeing us a certain way, and if nothing else, just understanding us and getting us and knowing us so that we can be known and we can be understood and seen. We will spend our lives wanting that and being affirmed when we get it and feeling better the higher and higher public opinion is about us. In fact, it's crazy to think that you would live any other way. I mean, these are all the people we're sharing the planet with. And yet the, and, 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 and yet the message that, that we hear oftentimes in response to that is, you know, because you can't say that that's a good reason to live. You can't say that's a good motivator. You can't, you can't say to people nowadays like, oh, uh, how should you see yourself? Well, all that really matters is what other people think of you. Because even though we all actually believe that, what really matters is what other people think of you, we, we can't confess it, we can't admit it. So what we say is we say, what really matters is what you think of yourself. Right? What really matters is how you view yourself. It doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what you think about who you are. For so many of us, we are insecure and we care so much about what other people think of us. And this is why, and I'm going to say something that is absolutely insane right now. This is why there is so much freedom in knowing this one thing. That no one... No one really understands you, okay? No one really knows you for you. Nobody really gets you and sees you. And because of of their understanding of you, that that you can be you. They don't. They don't don't see enough. They they don't really get what's going on. And, And so at the very least, you have an incomplete view of you from other people. There is literally only one person who knows you, actually knows you fully, and that's God. And so what he says is, why would you waste your time caring about what anyone else thinks of you when they don't even really know anyway? And sometimes we see this in other people. We go, why do you care so much if, they, if, it is, if the people you work with or the people you know, if, you, if your family, if whoever just sees you this way or cares this or understands this thing or whatever because, you know, they're wrong anyway, right? They don't really know. And that 
actually, what we, what, we read, what we read about and hear about in Jesus' teaching is there is freedom in simply letting go of that idea. I think that this, like, we discover a lot of this stuff in those wonderful, amazing years that are adolescence and high school. And oh boy, what great years they are. Because as you go into this world, and it really is its own world, uh, I will tell you this, looking back, I feel, I felt, but I feel really badly for people in, in let, we'll just say high school. I feel badly for people in high school who were ever under the illusion that they were like winning the battle of public opinion. People who thought, I'm actually doing it. They actually like me. I'm popular or I'm, you know, not unpopular. Uh, settle for that. And, and, and what you find is like, what I would feel is I really, I really pity the people at the very top who are like, I'm killing it right now. People like me. And if I can keep it up, man, this is great. Because it actually can give you the illusion of going through your life thinking people will like me throughout my life if I try hard enough and do the right things. I can win at this thing. And then there are those who just completely give up around that age. They're like, no, I'm, I'm terrible. Uh, no one will ever like me. Uh, I certainly don't like myself. And, uh, and, and believe that they're completely defeated by this whole system that even exists. I kind of like being in the middle area, which is like, ha, huh, no, no. Never gonna win that one, you know? I'm gonna have to figure out some other system, but this thing isn't real, right? What we, what we, were, what we call that, when you are uh, too into that whole world, is we call it being a slave to other people. And no one knows how infuriating this is more than parents who are like, please do not worry about what these people think of you because have you seen your friends? Have you been around these people? You actually care what they think of you? Ah. <sighs> No, please don't. And it doesn't change the older you get, believe it or not. And you look at someone who cares so much what other people think of them and you think you're a slave to those people's opinions. And it isn't really a small percentage of us. Because the majority of us are living in such a way that when given the opportunity to give a testimony of ourselves, to actually ask the question, what is this life representing? And what is this life, what is the billboard that I'm putting out there? The billboard is a simple one, me. Me, 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 me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Is it better to be self-deprecating right now? Okay, good. I'm not that great. Don't look at me, but, you know, look at me. But I know, I know, I'm a mess, right? It's a mess. Life's a mess, but don't worry about it, right? Or, or no, I'm, no, things are good. Look at me. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm one of the few people who can say my life is really great and, and, and there aren't really bad things that, that have happened to me or that I've done. And yes, people seem to really like me. So yes, look at me. You know, I'm sure that's what God wants, right? The testimony that we give is to look at us because we care about how people view us. Now, that's one extreme. That's called self-consciousness. That's an inferiority complex that says, I, I'm only really complete if enough people are happy with, the, with what they see when they look at me and they know me and they're my friends. 
The other option, the other alternative, is to be self-confident. To say, no, it's not what other people think of me. It's what I think of myself that matters. And so as long as I can feel good about who I am and confident in who I am, then that is the measure of a good life and of me doing well and being okay. So I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care about my family think, what my family thinks. I don't care about, I don't even care about what history says. I don't care about culture. I don't care about even what the Bible says. I only care about what I think. You go, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. Don't say I don't care about what the Bible says. I care about what the Bible says. Well, you know, except when you, when you come across something in, in the Bible and you're like, oh, that's, that does not feel right to me. I feel bad about myself, right? When I look at that, that can't be true or it can't be that way or I don't want to believe, whatever reason, if I'm going to feel good about who I am and I'm going to be confident in who I am, then this thing can't have a place in my life and I'm sure God didn't mean it to be what it seems like it says. This is a way more popular message, this idea of being confident with yourself because it's obviously easier to say it to other people and feel like you're encouraging them in a way that's good, but um, it also really just resonates with us. And I mean, any commercial that you watch is going to be aiming at one or the other of these two things, right? It's going to say, buy this thing because you care what everybody thinks and you know it and so do I. Or it's going to be like, don't worry about what anyone thinks. Be that small group of people who don't care what people think and all that matters is what you believe and what you think. So, so, don't be like those people that go to the gym and work out all the time because they care what other people think. Be one of those people that comes to this gym and works out all the time because you'll feel good about who you are and all that matters is what you think. But it's the same gym and they're making money. They're making money on all of us, guys. All of us. Could you even imagine the amount of freedom that it would bring to walk into a room and say that I don't need people to think a certain thing about me? And could you imagine the freedom to be able to look in the mirror and say, I don't need to be okay with myself today in order to know that I'm okay with God? that I don't have to engage in the constant, relentless, unyielding, exhausting job of self-promotion. And I don't have to meet my own expectations that I put on myself so much of the time. He goes on and he talks about, about, about Jesus. And when they ask him who he is, he says that the one who is coming is one who sandals. He's not even fit or worthy to untie. At the time, the only person who could untie a master's sandals, a teacher's sandals, was a slave. Not even their disciples. Their disciples wouldn't touch their feet or their sandals. Only a slave would touch someone's feet and their sandals for them. And he says, I'm not even fit to be considered a slave of the one who is coming next. Which really, really puts quite a spotlight on this guy, whoever he is that's coming next. And when Jesus himself comes, he describes him this way. He says, behold, the Lamb of God is coming. And that term isn't used much in the New Testament to describe Jesus. It's only used one other time. There's all these other things that are said, but he calls him the Lamb of God. And you go, why would he call him the Lamb of God? Because a lamb is a sacrifice. And the great thing about a sacrifice, I'll make it real simple for you, is this. This thing dies so I don't have to die. That's it. That's a sacrifice. Sacrifice is not that fun. Uh, but better than the alternative. This dies so I don't have to. 
But a lot of things died. A lot of things that they sacrificed were much more valuable than a single lamb. I mean, they were. They were, they were larger. They were more powerful. There was, there was more uh, brutality or there was, uh, it took longer uh, to sacrifice bulls and to sacrifice cows and to sacrifice all other things. So why a lamb? They are not actually any purer than those other things. We sometimes think a lamb is innocent or something. And the reason is, one, we do actually feel bad for a lamb more likely than we're, going to be, than we're going to feel bad for a predator, some animal that is bigger or that is stronger. That we actually, we even read in the Old Testament when someone's trying to make David feel bad, when Nathan's trying to make David feel bad, he tells him a story about a guy who had a lamb that he thought was so great that he like fed it and treated it like part of his family and let it live in his house with him. He, he wouldn't have said that same thing about like a bull or something because bulls are nasty. They're so gross. I just saw one like a month ago and it was like, ugh, so gross. I don't see them a lot, you know. The other reason why he says lamb is because a lamb doesn't put up a fight. A lamb will, for the most part, allow itself to be sacrificed, allow itself to be killed. And the one who is to come will be will be a sacrifice for us and he will let it happen. He will willingly allow us to sacrifice him. And you know what? When it happens, it'll break our heart because we'll actually care about him. So he calls him the Lamb of God And he says then that he baptizes Jesus and it says the spirit comes upon him and it remains on him. And that means a lot, that word remains, because people in scripture were anointed with the spirit of God all the time when he called them to do things. If he called Moses to him service, he basically anointed Moses and said, okay, now you're my guy. But guess what? You could screw it up. And you could not be God's guy anymore. And that happened all the time. In fact, Moses didn't get to see the promised land because God said, you disobeyed me. And so you don't get to be my leader beyond a certain point. It happened to kings and rulers. It happened to prophets. It happened to these people who came and saved God's people even, who did so much to obey him. He said, I will give you my spirit and I'll give you my anointing. And that means that they have to listen to what you say because it's me talking through you and you're leading on my behalf. But what he says about Jesus is it says that he, the spirit comes on him and it will stay on him. It remained on him, which means no matter how crazy things get, no matter how strange some of the things that he says seem to be, no matter how much you go, it really does sound like he doesn't care about what the Bible used to say. And I'm wondering if he cares about the Bible. Well, he's saying he does. Okay, no, okay, he is. Okay, I'm not sure. Maybe, no, the spirit remained on him. And so they knew that all the way through his life and his death, God was still speaking through him and using him as his Messiah. He is talking about Jesus, and as he does so, he is saying the most radical things that he can about him. If we are to look at the world the way John does, we will see a radically different world. We will see a radically different person in ourselves and what brings us value. Our view of ourself will be totally different, and our view of Jesus will be completely different. And it will be so extreme the way that we see Jesus because the way John sees Jesus and the way people are gonna have to wrestle with whether they see him this way or not moving forward is simple. Is Jesus the answer to literally everything or is he not? Does Jesus really save and save and save and save and save or does he not? Is our message, is my message, is my life, the billboard, the thing that people should be 
pointed to when they see me in my life and they get to know me and they interact with me and they hear all the stories and see all the stuff, if they're pointed to Jesus now, should they be tomorrow and should they be next year and should they be in 10 years? And what if I get tired of thinking that the answer is always Jesus? Is it really always Jesus? Yes, it always is Jesus. We have a view of Jesus that says he's sufficient all the time and he's gonna be tomorrow and he's gonna be next year and he's gonna be in 10 years and in 100 years. And that we know that he is who people need to focus on. Could you even imagine a world in which, I wish I had a, I wish I had a, a commercial, I wish I had a movie trailer voice right now. In a world, no. could you imagine a world in which people actually wanted someone to focus on someone other than themselves? That people actually, and I'm not talking about people who are like, oh, I don't want anyone to look at me. That's because you're insecure. That's because you have an inferiority complex. That's because you actually care so much about how people see you that you've already accepted that they won't accept you. That's kind of the same thing, and I'm sorry to tell you, but, you know, sorry, you're still, you're stuck. That people look at you and they don't see someone who is self-absorbed. They see someone who is Christ-absorbed. They don't see someone who is focused on themselves and trying to point everyone to themselves, but somebody who's trying to point everyone to Jesus. And we do such a good job of like fake doing this in the church, right? We do such a good job, right? We go, no, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna talk all about myself. I'm gonna say how amazing I am and how awesome it is. I'm gonna let everybody think I'm so amazing and wonderful. And then I'm gonna be like, but you know, right? Jesus, it's for Jesus, right? It's for Jesus. It's for him. He wanted me to tell everyone this thing about myself that's so awesome, right? And John didn't seem to think that. John wasn't like, he wanted me to say this thing about myself, about where I came from and how epic my story is and all the things that I've done. No. He said, I just want people, when they come to me and they see something here, to get pointed to Jesus as much as I can. It was my son's birthday yesterday. And birthdays, you know, six, seven-year-olds, you, you want to talk about self-absorbed, right? It's like... It's like nothing, it's like you spend 364, 363 days trying to teach kids to not be self-absorbed, and then Christmas and birthday come, and you're like, all right, fine, okay. And he is the worst on his birthday. He is the worst. The more he gets, the worse he becomes, right? And it's like, I want, I want, I want. Okay, fine, you have, yeah, I don't want, I want, I want, you know? And you're like, man, they just, these kids, you know, they're so selfish, right? And then I, I like was thinking yesterday, kind of at the end of the day, I was like, you know, I mean, I did kind of, throw a fit about what I was going to have for lunch, you know, because I did have some kind of my time that I wanted to. And, and all I really wanted to do on Tegan's birthday, all I wanted to do was watch Spider-Man with him. And so, you know, when it looked like that may not happen, I may not have handled it super well, right? And, uh, and, and a lot of us, even with kids, you're kind of like, yeah, a lot of what I care about with Christmas and what I care about with Christmas is a little bit what they want, but a lot of what I want, right? See, here's the thing about kids that's so frustrating is they're so bad at hiding being self-absorbed. And then it turns out that you don't actually become less self-absorbed when you grow up. You just become way better at hiding it, right? So like, I'm just as self-absorbed as he is. I just know how to hide it better. Um, I get mad at my friends too, but I just don't tell on them right away, right, to their parents, which he does too. I don't get that either. And this is really the reality of being who we are and living in the flesh is like, we don't stop being self-absorbed. We just get really good at covering it up and hiding it. And then we also get really good at going, but we're all self-absorbed, right? So that's okay, right? And then the next thing that Jesus talks about, we're like, yeah, but none of us, we don't do that. Okay, yeah, right, we don't do that. No. And like, that's... No? No? Okay. Yeah, not that one either. Okay, good. Good. Oh, man, that was close, right? Could you even imagine living in a world where people actually were not absorbed with themselves? 
This is hard for me. I like talking. I like talking about myself. I like thinking that by talking about myself, I'm talking about God. But when Jesus talks to his people about denying themselves, this is first and foremost what he means. He says, you won't live so that people focus on you and you won't live to where it even really matters how you feel about you. You will live in a way that it matters what people think of me. It will break your heart to think that they don't know me. It will break your heart to think that you might not know me because you're too focused on yourself looking in the mirror all the time, worrying about how you know yourself. Does my life point people to him? Does my story point people to him? If my life is great, is it because of who he is? Could you imagine someone who had all the money in the world and was way more into Jesus than money? Because I don't know if I've met a lot of people like that. Or if my life is hard and my life is painful, am I able to still be a light because of who he is? And and are the things that I'm going through and the trials I'm going through not there to point people to who I am, but to who Jesus is? I cannot tell you how many people I know who have come to faith, have given their lives to Jesus and chosen to deny themselves because they watched other people go through painful circumstances and point to Jesus instead of themselves. There may not be a more powerful testimony than that. If life is hard... Am I still shining as a light because my life is about him? The the church would absolutely explode if this were the way that we saw ourselves, if this were the way that we saw the world, if this were the way that we saw Jesus. It would. It's, It's how people lived in the early church so often, and it's why the message caught fire in the way that it did. And we all know when people are looking at us, And the tell on this is people are talking about me. People are focused on me. People are excited about me. People are thinking about me. And I want people to be talking about him. And I want people to be focused on him. And I want people to be looking at him. And I want people thinking about him. Let's pray. Father, we completely accept most of the time that we, if everyone is a certain way, that that means it's okay to be like that. That whatever's normal is okay. But God, we know that's not true. We pray and ask that you would give us the faith to actually believe that there is freedom in pointing people to you and not ourselves. Because God, it is very hard to think that we could dedicate our lives to not pointing people to us and not obsessing about ourselves, but pointing them to you and that there could actually be freedom in that, God. The reason that we do what we do is because we believe that it matters and we believe it's fulfilling, God. Please, as we worship you, as we sing to you, please, as we try to let go of all the things of this world, Convince us in our hearts, not just in our minds, that there is freedom in you like there is nowhere else, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God, as we sing those words to show us who you are and to fill us with your heart and to lead us to those, to those around us, Lord. Father, we, we want that to be true. We want to mean those words when we sing them and we want that to happen. But Lord, we 
recognize that we can't do that. We can't even have our gaze fixed upon you. If we're so overwhelmed and weary and tired and consumed with worry and concern about how others see us, Lord. If we're going to bed each night asking the question, am I doing enough? Am I living the way I should be? Does my life look like it should be? Because we feel like that's who we are, God. We have the energy to focus on just about one person's image, and it's either gonna be ours or it's gonna be yours or it's gonna be someone else's. But Lord, our prayer is that you would show us how beautiful you are. Show us that being about you and not ourselves, God, that it is true freedom, Lord. Help us to be attracted to the idea of it, to find relief in it, Lord, rather than to feel like it's a burden, God. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for the fact that we know that all of this isn't about us, but it's about you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.